0: Hello and welcome to the ITM podcast. ITM is the Institute of Travel Management, the UK Business Travel Industries Not-for-Profit Association. And this episode is brought to you in partnership with Clarity Business Travel. A big thanks as usual to our friends at Clarity for helping us with the podcast. So each time I'm joined by an industry expert to enlighten and inform us on subject matter for our members. But this time I'm joined by Martin Ferguson. So Martin, you are, I'm going to get your job title right. The Vice President for Global Communications, Public Affairs and Integrated Marketing at American Express Global Business Travel.
1: Did I get it right? Well, that's my job title on the LinkedIn page, so I can appeal to all recruiters looking for expansive communications and marketing discipline experience. But... um, yeah, that's basically what I do. Uh, I, I'd just like to say, though, it's, it's, thank you very much to Clarity as the, as the sponsor of this podcast. It really is a shame that it's not uh, visual, so that the listeners can't actually see the uh, the producer's tattoos, which are absolutely remarkable. He's a beautiful man, is Kyle. Thank you to Kyle. So I'm just
0: interested, <laughs> back to that title, you, you have integrated marketing. You don't have unintegrated
1: marketing in your remit, no? Yes, that's a very interesting (laughs) question, Scott. Uh, What that really means is that um, I'm in charge of the, uh, let's say, the disciplines that fall within the external communications function. That may be PR and media relations, industry affairs, public affairs, social media. But um, it's very important these days, particularly when you work for a global corporation, that all of these disciplines are integrated with the marketing function. And it's content, reaching out to customers, reaching out to vendors and suppliers. It all has to be integrated.
0: Well, I'm glad I asked that question. Yes, so am
1: I. Thank you, Martin.
0: Um, Okay, so for those that don't know you, you've had a a glittering career uh, in travel, but actually, by trade, you're a hard-nosed journalist. Uh, Am I right? So how did it all start for you?
1: I I think glittering is perhaps an exaggeration, but in any case, yes, I am a journalist to trade, as they say. Um, When I left uh, university some time ago, I took a job in a newspaper in Glasgow and kind of cut my teeth there over the, uh, the subsequent years. Um, there's probably no better place to learn about journalism than, than Glasgow. It's a very hard, tough uh, environment, and um, I think it used to sell more newspapers per head of population than most other cities in the world, which means it's very very competitive, and uh, there's a there's a very high standard to be upheld. So, in terms of it being a learning ground for me, it was it was very very effective and very important. And um, without it, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, but it was 2007, I guess I moved down to London in search of employment. The reason for that being the internet was kind of coming in and changing the business model for publications, for newspapers and magazines and so forth. And Glasgow was a tough place to get, let's say, um, full-time employment with a newspaper that I was comfortable uh, being part of. Uh, So I came to London and I got a job with the, the Travel Trade Gazette, which was TTG. It was a very exciting prospect because I was lured there with the promise of going on luxury uh, excursions around the world. And actually, for the first few weeks, that, that was the case. I went to Mauritius and I went to Libya. Maybe not luxury in Libya, but I went to Libya and a few other places. And then they announced the new business travel magazine, which was called TTG Business. And I guess because I was last in the door, they said, well, you'll have to work on that. I didn't know anything about business travel at all. And uh, over the next kind of two to three years, I had to, to learn about the, the library of acronyms that exist uh, in, in this industry and, uh, and to really understand how it works. And, and really, that's what propelled me to where I am now, because I soon found out that it's a, it's a small, it's a big industry in terms of its global reach, but it's also a small industry. Uh, you can get to know a lot of the, the key players fairly quickly if you, if you network properly. And that's really how I got to where I am now. So th- via Sabre, via freelance uh, period in my career that enabled me to work with quite a number of um of travel industry players, including the ITM, believe it or not. And then I ended up at American Express GBT.
0: I think my takeaway from that is that you never wanted
1: to be in this industry, but you are. <laughs> is that is that mm. f- it's, I never I I didn't know anything about it. I'm not sure how many people grew up dreaming about working in business travel and I'm not saying that flippantly like, I just I don't think many people know about it and I still have to explain to certain people who ask me what I do for a living like what business travel is but I'm happy I'm here put it that way.
0: Well, and that's a subject for a future podcast because future talent coming into the industry is, is a real um, issue for us to address so you gave me my first ever media interview didn't you?
1: I did I did you were with British Airways at the time mm. I remember and that's going back maybe 10 or 12 years. I'd like to say that was back when you had hair but you've been as bald as a cue ball for the duration of our uh, relationship. But it w- it was absolutely <laughs> one of the highlights of my my career. I still think about it with great fondness.
0: Yeah, I still remember the, the profanity that you uh, that you issued when I opened my page of notes and you were uh, you were disappointed that you weren't going to be able to um have your
1: way. <laughs> I wasn't surprised to see you with the notes because uh, as I learned over the those early years that the British Airways executives were among the the best prepared of all the kind of travel industry professionals when it came to media engagement. So I might have rolled my eyes in exasperation, realising that I was probably going to get very little good content from the interview, but I wasn't surprised to see the notes. All right, so look, the, the podcast today is mainly about good
0: communication and influencing. And in your career in different guises, you've interviewed, advised, observed a lot of business leaders. So we're going to explore what effective communication and influencing is about. What do you think effective orators speakers
1: influences do well just to take a step back rather than address the the question about orators communications 101 is about first of all understanding who your audience is because unless you speak to your audience in a way that they're going to understand and engage with then you have lost right from the word go and just to kind of put that into context, you, we, we, we engage with this, let's say, discipline every single day when we look at the media. An incident takes place, or there is a political event, or there is a, 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 a football match or whatever. Something happens, and then stories appear in the press, but they're written in different ways. The story about one event in the FT will be written totally differently from the same story, the same event in The Sun, because they're different audiences. So before you get on a stage, before you sit on a panel, before you put pen to paper, you need to understand who you're addressing. That's, that's the first point. Second of all, I would say there's lots of obvious characteristics about good public speaking and, and good writing. That's the, the need to be succinct, to be pithy, to be interesting, uh, to tell people things that they don't already know. But the one piece of advice or piece of guidance that I will offer to whomever I I work with is whatever you're doing, try to be yourself or maybe better said, don't try and be someone you're not because if you come across as trying to be something different, most people will, will see that and you won't be given a huge amount of credit for it. So be authentic, be yourself. Not everyone can be good at everything which is another thing I've learned having worked with many senior people. You don't necessarily have to be a great keynote speaker and a great panellist and a great writer and a great participant in a podcast as maybe you've discovered over the recent weeks. You, ca- you don't necessarily... Not until today. <laughs> you're not necessarily good at anything. You have to kind of play to your strengths. And if you have people around you that can, can help you do that, mm. then m- more's the better. Don't be afraid to ask for advice. Y- everybody needs to prepare... I say that now having turned up for this podcast and not seen any of the questions, but everybody needs to prepare. That, again, is kind of fundamental. There are a lucky few people who can be briefed five minutes before uh, a a public appearance and can go out and be on message and be engaging. Um, That's just the way it is for for most people, particularly when we're talking about... um, our industry because at the end of the day when we and and anyone who's been involved in like say the ITM conference um, or similar events across the industry where we bring in quite highly paid celebrities or motivational speakers people who do it for, for, for a living you can immediately see there's a difference between them and the best speakers we have in the industry, because we don't do this professionally. We're not professional speakers. Many of us, though, have to do public speaking, public engagements as part of our jobs. So I think there's also kind an of expectation about how good you need to be. So we talked about the importance of knowing your audience. It's just so critical. But
0: can you give us some examples of uh, where that has been done well or not so well, and the consequences?
1: Sure. I think it's probably easier to reflect on some instances where it's not been done well. Uh, and I can probably think of maybe two things. Um First of all, maybe this is going back quite a few years, uh, and I was a journalist at the time. Um, I I remember there was a a fairly well-known supplier brand in in the UK, and, and, and multinational, but in the UK, who kind of embarked on a very misguided PR strategy. Where it was uh, basically calling out the demise of travel management companies, and uh, and and kind of citing a whole bunch of spurious reasons for that, and they they had there was press releases and interviews and speeches and so on, and, and it really it really backfired. People kind of called it out for what it was. Uh, they didn't really understand that they were they wouldn't be able to let's say dupe people into thinking that what they were saying was was true and the the data and stats that they were using to try to prove that this prediction had some kind of um, you know e- evidence attached to it and the the whole strategy failed so spectacularly that one of the people behind it ultimately found themselves out of a job, which which was a real shame. Um, but it just goes to show that if you if you don't know. Who you're addressing if you don't understand your audience and what they know and what they expect, then it can really spectacularly backfire. I'll also never forget that was the year I got locked out of my hotel with no clothes on at the business travel show, which was a real trauma for me and my um, in my business travel past. We can go into that later, perhaps a future podcast. A future we'll podcast. That Beyond that, I would say that a recurring example, particularly when I was a, a reporter, was when you would be uh, kind of put in front of of, of suppliers of different levels of seniority it wasn't always CEOs it could have been uh, sales directors or client management directors or, um, or, or product managers or whatever but if, if you turned up for an interview and they were hell bent on selling their products to you and that wasn't there to be sold to that was uh, one of the most frustrating cases of people not understanding their audience and, and who they were supposed to be addressing and what was expected of them uh, and that still happens to this day with monotonous regularity and something that we um in my in my current place of work are um are very conscious of avoiding at all costs.
0: Yeah, and something we see as well at ITM not just in a journalist supplier dynamic like you described but any kind of buyer supplier dynamic um overt selling or saying what you're going to sell anyway without Questioning that customer is what they're actually looking for uh, can be very costly for any supplier.
1: It always comes back to authenticity as well. You, you, if people think you're being misleading or you're, you're uh, being disingenuous or you're, you're there with, with one motivation, which is to get money off them or to sell them something, then often it doesn't work out as well as you might expect.
0: How important is body language? You made the really important point about being authentic, and of course
1: that's essential. Again, it depends who you're talking to. I mean, In, in a corporate environment, it's usually fairly formal. I always, look again, and it comes back to trying to be who who you are. So for example, over the years, I've always found that the, the, the best speeches, keynotes, panel sessions have been where there's an element of humour injected, because people like that. We're often talking about fairly serious or dry subject matter, so if there's any kind of humour can be injected, that's great. If If that's not you, then don't try and be funny, because you'll just come across worse. Do you know? And uh, body language would kind of be the same. I I I mean, you get body language experts, and I'm sure they would give you some great advice. But uh, it's not something I necessarily focus on uh, unless someone really has an an obvious issue, and you want to kind of bring it to the attention. But no, again, it's about people being comfortable, relaxed, being themselves, and uh, and trying to give um, something that an audience will engage with. I think
0: of you as a a language enthusiast. You like language, and often leaders and people in all of business have to communicate in written form whether it be in email articles how can you
1: get across your message most effectively in the written form again it depends on the audience you are addressing it depends on what you're writing uh, and let me let me give you a few examples. If I were f- writing, um, or if a, a company spokesman were writing, an article on thought leadership, I would want them to, to be sure that it was succinct and to the point. I would want to make sure that it was informative and they're telling people things that they don't already know because that's really, really important. You, you always need to kind of strive for originality in writing. I mean, whenever I put pen to paper myself, no matter what I'm writing, I always try and make sure that every sentence that I craft is something that is not replicated from somewhere else. Um, And I think that's a really important aspect of writing is is originality. I'll give you just another example of just trying to engage an audience for a specific purpose. And this might help anyone who has some kind of internal communication responsibility. So in one of my previous roles, uh, when I took over, there was a kind of a news service that was managed by an external agency. And all they would do, they they would create a list of links to trade publications with stories that, they thought that uh, the staff might find interesting. But when I came in and looked at the analytics, nobody was really opening the email. In fact, many people were deleting it before even opening it. And I thought, well, we need to change that. So I started, kind of took it on myself, and I would, instead of just sending a list of links, I would write an introductory summary. There's only a couple of paragraphs and more people started to open it, more people started to read it. And then I started to put a little bit more kind of commentary around it and I started to, where possible, inject a little bit of humour into it. And the more that I did that, the the more I tried to be creative with the writing the more people started to open it and the more people actually used to re- reply to it. A lot of the time it was very complimentary towards the writing, which I was obviously very chuffed about, but it was also people commenting on the stories they were reading because the mechanism was, say something engaging at the beginning to get them in, they'll then continue reading through the bit in the middle, which is the information you really want them to absorb, and then you would have some kind of you know, sign-off, some kind of conclusion that, again, they would feel compelled to read. And that was writing achieving an objective. You want to inform the staff, and this is the way you can drag them through
0: it. And just thinking uh, at the time of recording, Brexit could still be anything and nothing. And so just thinking about, you know, how the business travel industry prepares in terms of business continuity. How well do you think the, the sector is is getting ready for whatever may come? Bear in mind, obviously, we don't
1: know at this point what's coming. As this is going to be available online, I am loath to make any kind of predictions for fear of looking like an absolute <laughs> fool. So what what I will say will be fairly generic. We've done fairly detailed assessments of the implications of brexit on business travel so forgetting about the implications for you know the our, our business and its people and so on but the implications on business travel and to be honest it, it seems to be fairly l- low risk Th- the biggest challenge would seem to be the potential disruption at airports where do people queue are the airports organized in time if it's a no deal brexit of course I'm referring to our airport staff trained in how to handle the potential disruption. That that for for me is where we have got potential for the biggest uh, the biggest problem. That aside, I mean, aviation seems to be in a place where um, it will continue as is, certainly until I think it's October twenty twenty. You know, um, mobile data roaming will be unaffected. Um, you might need to, you know, you get uh, some paperwork from the post office in order to be able to drive overseas. You'll need to have a passport that's been valid for at least six months. You know, there are various various wee kind of bureaucratic things you'll have to address, but it's not going to prevent people from travelling and trading. And again, if you look at how Brexit is shaping up, in in terms of No Deal, this is something which will impact the movement of goods rather than the movement of people right. and services.
0: Okay, so let's uh, switch topic again a little bit. We ask all people uh, who come and talk to us on the podcast uh, or are normally very regular travellers, and you're no exception. So what kind of things do you do to, to look after yourself when you're travelling? Uh,
1: to be honest, Scott, I don't really do anything special. I mean, But you look so great. Thank you, thank you. I wish I could say the same for you, but um, uh, to be honest, I'd, I'd get to the airport early. I guess I I try and eat healthily when I'm when I'm away, you know. It's true every time I have flown with you.
0: You've been at the you've been in the lounge for 3 hours already, it seems. W-
1: working, working. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I am a retired drinker, so I don't I don't have that to worry about anymore, but um no, I I don't have any kind of well-being routine to be to be perfectly honest. And if anything, uh, I I maybe when I'm away on a business trip tend to, you know, eat less healthily than I do at home because I don't have the pressure of anyone else forcing me to eat things that I'm really not comfortable with. I ask
0: you, of course, as as an ex-athlete, uh, some people may not know that you were a, quite a
1: physical specimen in your time. Yes, thanks thanks for reminding me that, Scott. I think that might be an exaggeration on, on your part. Um, if you are alluding to the fact that I, I once played football, then that much is true. But uh, at the age of 27, when I moved to London, I kind of retired from from looking after myself and went through a quite intense 10-year period of not looking after myself. Um, and working very hard and playing very hard and such like, uh, which is kind of part of the reason why I decided to start leading a more health, healthy, healthier lifestyle about eighteen months ago. But uh, I, I, I appreciate your, uh, your compliment and your, um, your admiration. You look fantastic.
0: Thank you. So, all right, we'll come to our last question, and okay. it's not meant to be a morbid question, but um, yeah. thinking about looking back when it's all done, what will you want to be remembered for? What would you put on
1: your headstone? On oh, my headstone. Mm. I I was seriously, and in fact, I think this is already a done deal. My my body's going to the uh, to the uh, the medical students, so and then I guess I'll be cremated after that. So there will be no headstone. But and but what do I want people to be talking about at, at industry events? Mean, work with me, on this, make it the <laughs> condolence card or something. It's not it's not meant to be. I, I, I honestly I don't care. I really don't <laughs> care. I don't. I mean. This is my work. This is my job. I, I've, I've no kind of aspiration to be remembered for for anything, really. You know, I, I guess who wouldn't want to be remembered fondly for something? I just don't really know what that what that would be. <laughs> well, I'll never forget you, Martin. All right. This well, is <laughs> what was your name again?
0: <laughs> okay, Martin. So I was about to end the podcast, but actually, the more I think about it, I need to hear this business travel story locked out of the hotel room or oh, the business travel is it, show. Is it
1: family friendly? Well, well yeah. I mean, n- nothing. Nothing bad happened apart from I got locked out of my hotel room in the buff. I'm going to say it wasn't my fault because it was the it was the layout of the hotel that confused me. I can't even remember the name of the hotel we were in at the time, but it's the one that's right opposite Gloucester Road tube station, if you know the geography. And I'm on like the third or fourth floor and I was in a corner room. So, you know, normally when you go into a hotel room, your bathroom will be on your right-hand side, or your left-hand side, but you walk through a kind of hallway and then it'll open out into a room. Where the bed is. Well, in the suites it, that you normally it, stay in. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. nowadays I'm in these massive things with five ah. and six doors, but back in the day it was very simple. <laughs> um, and what happened was it was in a corner room, so as soon as you opened the, the door to the room, the bed was right there, it was right next to the door. And it must have been like two o'clock in the morning, and I was in a deep sleep, and I woke up to go to the bathroom and just instinctively walked through the door, and next thing I knew the door had closed behind me, and I was in the hallway and the bright lights, and I couldn't get back in again. I mean, fortunately, it was two in the morning, so there, there weren't a lot of people milling around. Um, and there wasn't a lot to see, but I couldn't find a kawaz, like, or I couldn't find a curtain. There was nothing really to kind of wrap myself up in. So I just had to go to the lift and go down and shout, hello, can anybody let me in my room, please? And I ga- it was a guy, I swear to God, this is true, the guy kind of stuck his head round the corner. He says, you locked out your room? I says, well, yes. <laughs> There's no other reason I'd be standing here wearing no clothes, so he, he said don't worry, and he came over and he got in the lift with me he never never looked at me once, he just, this happens all the time don't worry, and he, and he lay me back in again and I went back to sleep, so um, it could have been worse Martin, what a charming story,
0: thank you for joining us Martin Ferguson, and join us on the next ITM podcast, you can find out more about ITM on our website, and more about Martin's stories in his forthcoming memoirs